We are again tonight studying from the book of Titus. So if you will turn there to Titus chapter 2. You'll remember perhaps that in the end of chapter 1, Paul was describing to Titus how false teachers were propounding their false doctrine. And in contrast to that, now he writes to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Father, that's what we want tonight, to adorn the doctrine of you, our Savior, to live lives that shine light on the Word and are bright commercials for the faith. So teach us from this passage, each and every one, how we should do that. Teach us how to be more like Jesus and to rely more upon Jesus, who is our Savior and our help. We pray in his name. Amen. I remember the first Wednesday night that I was here in this church. Some of you remember that as well. Some of you were here. Many of you were here. And um, the youth were meeting in the back room. Do you guys remember that? having a prayer meeting while we were having our prayer meeting. And I went back there and I said, we're going to all come out and pray together. And the overwhelming sentiment among the teenagers that night was, I don't want to pray with those old people. They don't know what I'm going through and we don't have anything in common. Of course, um, when you're 15, all those old people includes anyone who are 25 and older, I think. But it was clear that night Um, that whoever the old people were, that there was a bit of a gap between the old people and the young people in the church. And as we see in Titus chapter 2, that's not a phenomenon that was common in the New Testament. And so I responded that night by telling our young people, all of whom are a lot closer to being among the old people now themselves, that the very fact that the adults were unfamiliar with them and they with the adults was good reason why they should all be sharing their prayer request together. And Titus 2, 1 through 10 tonight is going to make it patently clear, I think, that old people and young people belong together in the church, that old people and young people ought to do life together, serving one another, helping one another, blessing one another. Just as Paul says Elsewhere that neither slave nor free nor male or female nor Greek nor Jew should be separated in the church. Here we're reminded that neither is there to be a line of separation between the old and the young. And it's evident from Titus 2 that Paul expected the old and the young to be all together in the same churches. He addresses them all here as though 
they are together. He did not envision, in other words, churches geared only towards 20-somethings or 60-somethings. He didn't envision 8 a.m. worship services for senior citizens and then 11 o'clock worship services for the young folks. And though unity across the age brackets is not Paul's main point here in Titus 2, it's worth noting, I think, that many 21st century churches have totally missed out on what the New Testament pictures as normal and routine, namely that Christian churches would have unity across age groups in their local congregations. Just to give an example of how this is happening in the world, we visited a church over the holidays that had two worship services. One of them was for those old people, very obviously. That's the one we went to. We were the only people there under 50 besides the youth minister who was giving announcements. And then they had another service that's geared toward the young whippersnappers. And they have intentionally split their church in half based around what people wear to church and what kind of music they like so that the old people and the young people are in two different services and never the twain shall meet. And there's virtually, therefore, no possibility in that congregation for the older women, for instance, to teach the younger women, as Paul commands in this passage, because the older women and the younger women, by design, rarely, if ever, come together in the same place. And so the story goes as church after church in our country divides itself and divides its Sundays into traditional and contemporary or as youth groups often have their whole own separate worship services from everyone else and as lots of newly planted churches gear nearly everything they do to certain age demographics, particularly young, hip age demographics. And it's sad because the church misses out on so much richness when all the people are together. Incidentally, this is why we do what we do, bringing the little ones into worship and prayer with us at early ages. It's not that we expect the children will get everything from the services that mom and dad will receive, but one thing that will happen as they sit with mom and dad is that unity will be fostered. The little ones will grow up around the senior citizens. The teenagers will get to know the mothers of three. The 20-somethings will be together with the 50-somethings. And we will gather weekly, not around a particular musical style or not around a particular way that we like to dress or do things. We won't gather around a particular age group affinity. We'll gather every week around the one thing that we all really do have in common, namely the Lord Jesus. There's no doubt that all of us are very different. Just within our small little congregation, there are vast differences in age, in income, in education, in Christian maturity, in family background, in skin color, in country of origin, in musical preference, and the list could go on. We're very different, but that's exactly the way God wants it to be. He wants his churches to be filled with people who in the world's eyes are very different. And the reason for that is because the fact that we are all so different in so many ways and yet we still love one another and function as a family demonstrates that the one thing that we all do have in common, Jesus, is more important to us than all the things in which we differ. The unity of local churches is built not around cultural affinities, but around Christ. 
and the interwoven lifestyles of young and old and male and female that Paul presents to us here in Titus chapter 2 are a wonderful opportunity for us to show that fact off. That we're not together because we all came out of the same shoot, but because we all have the same Savior. Church is about Christ, about Jesus. He is to be the center of attention at all times and in every way. He's more important than our personal affinities. And as Paul also points out in this passage, and and more to the main point of the passage, Jesus is also more important than mere good behavior. He's more important than our personal preferences, but he's also more important than us merely being nice people. Paul, as you read these verses, did not want old and young, male and female, slave and free, to behave in the appropriate way simply because it was good decorum and proper manners. That's not what he's interested in at all. The reason why Paul wanted older men to be dignified and younger women to honor their husbands and so on was because behaving in these ways honors Christ and honors his gospel. And I want to just walk you through these instructions rather quickly and show you that. I want you to notice with each and every group that Paul addresses here, he is concerned about their behavior, yes, but for reasons far more important than decorum's sake. He was concerned that men and women, old and young, slave and free, behave properly because doing so would bring honor and attractiveness and good repute to the message about Jesus. So just notice his concern right off the bat there in verse 1. He wants Titus to teach the people to live in such a way as will be fitting for sound doctrine. He doesn't just say, teach the people to live the right way, period. He says, I want you to teach the people so that the way they live in verses 2 through 10 will fit with sound doctrine. It wasn't their living by itself that Paul was primarily concerned about. Rather, Paul wanted them to live in a certain way because it fit or complemented or endorsed the sound doctrine that Paul and Titus were trying to convey to the people on this island of Crete. Namely, the doctrine of Christ and Him crucified. And notice how Paul emphasized the importance of doctrine or the Word of God or the faith, as he sometimes calls it, as he addresses these various groups on Crete. Older men, verse 2, were to be sound in faith. They were to have their theological ducks in a row to understand the gospel, to live it out. Older women, verse 3, were to spend their time teaching what is good. Not just doing what is good. He says that as well. But they're also to teach what is good. To pass along God's word and God's ways to others. The young women were to be sensible, good housewives and mothers. So that verse 5, the word of God will not be dishonored. Live the right way so that the word of God will not be discredited by you living the wrong way. Younger men in verse 7 were to strive for purity and doctrine following Titus's example And the reason why they were to do that is so that the opponent would have nothing bad to say about us. In other words, the opponent won't be able to undercut what we're trying to preach because we don't actually live the way it is proper. And then he says bond slaves in verses 9 and 10 were also to be men and women of good repute. Why? Because doing so would adorn or decorate the doctrine of God our Savior to reflect positively the change that the gospel makes in people's lives. So do you see, in every case, whether Paul is speaking to men or women, 
old or young, slave or free, he's concerned not about decorum for decorum's sake. Rather, he is concerned that the people of God will live in a certain way because if they do, the gospel will be seen in the correct light. And if they don't, the gospel will be undercut by their behavior. He wants them to live in such a way as to honor the word about Jesus and thus honor Jesus himself. And that's an important reality for you to carry with you into the workplace or the classroom or the kitchen or the checkout line and right now into the second chapter of Titus. The things that God is going to ask us to be and do tonight are not mere rules. Though even if they were mere rules, that would be enough for us to obey them with all discipline because they come from God himself. But I say these are not mere rules. In other words, if we ask God, why should a wife submit to her husband? Why should a slave be obedient to his Lord? God's answer is not simply because I said so. That would be enough. But that's not what he says. Rather, if we ask God, why should we behave in these certain ways? Why do young men need to be diligent? And why do they need to be sensible? Why do older women need to avoid gossip? God gives us a gospel reason. Not just because it's the way we do things, but He gives a gospel reason behind each bit of decorum to which He calls us. We do what we do because we know that our submission to God's will and God's ways will demonstrate to a watching world that Jesus Christ really does make a difference in our lives. We submit to the sometimes uncomfortable teachings of Titus 2, 1 through 10 because we believe that our doing so will confirm that the gospel we preach of Jesus Christ living a sinless life, dying on our behalf, rising from the dead on the third day, preparing a place on high for those who will trust Him alone, that this gospel is the right gospel. That's why we live the way we live. That's why we do what Paul asks us to do here. Our adherence to Titus 2, 1-10 shows the world that this news that we have is really good news and that it really changes lives. So here, the word of the Lord tonight, yes, because God says so, but also hear what he says because hearing and obeying what Paul teaches in these few verses will go a long way towards honoring Jesus and attracting people to his gospel. Now then, having considered the why of Titus 2, 1-10, namely that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect, let's spend the rest of our time looking at the what of these verses. What does Paul actually want these various members of the church to be and to do? Well, he speaks to five different groups of people, and he says five slightly different things, although you'll notice that there's quite a bit of overlap. But think about each of the five groups, beginning first with the older men in verse 2. The older men. What does Paul say to older men? Well, you can divide what he says basically in two, I think. In the first half of verse 2, he's reminding us that older Christian men are to possess three particular qualities that will make them respected in the community. They are to be temperate, dignified, and sensible. Some of the same kinds of things he says about the leaders in the church, aren't they? 
Three things that will make these men respected in the community. Temperate, dignified, sensible. First, temperate or self-controlled. In other words, he's saying old age is not the time to be going on binges, whether it's drinking binges or spending binges or some other kinds of binges. And do you know what I think for older people in our culture might be an area where temperance is needed? Television. If you visit in people's homes, so many older people in our culture are addicted to the television. Partly, it must be noted, because they're often lonely, which is an indictment against the younger generation. But be that as it may, it is to be an exercise in self-control, whatever we do. And that means that instead of spending all day in front of the TV, we might... Young or old, give more time to prayer or study or writing letters of encouragement and so on. Temperance, self-control in all things befits older people, Paul says. And then he says older men are called to be dignified and sensible. They're not to be ruled by their emotions. They're not to be fools. Rather, they're to be respected, trustworthy, honorable, reliable neighbors. The kind of people that a young mother could entrust her children to while she goes shopping. That's what older people should be. Or the kind of people who can be trusted to keep an eye on the house while the neighbors are on vacation. Older Christians should be the older, wiser friends that a young couple could go to for advice about child rearing. Or whether or not I should take the new job. Or I'm having trouble in my marriage. Or whatever it may be. That's the kind of older men that Paul is calling for. And I think this needs saying before we move on as well, talking about being dignified. One of the most undignified things that any of us can be is a constant grumbler. Now, some of us are cursed with this self-inflicted disease, and it doesn't only attack one generation or the other. But it does seem to be especially tempting among older people to become a grumbler. Everything's a pain in the neck. Things aren't like they used to be. The government is going to leave us all poor and homeless in a ditch somewhere. Now whether or not those things are actually true, and maybe they are sometimes, but whether they're true or not, complaining about them doesn't help anything, does it? All it does is it makes us undignified. It takes away from our witness. Complaining instead of praying is helpless and hopeless. But the older men and the older women who are temperate and dignified and sensible are people who are a blessing to have in the church. They are people who are a pleasure to have in the neighborhood and they are a credit to the transforming power of the gospel wherever they go. And then just notice the second half of verse 2. Paul says still about older men that they're to be sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. talks first just about their general behavior in the community, and now specifically about their understanding and their religion, their faith in God. They're to be men of the Scriptures. They're to be sound in faith, he says. They're to be men who know what they believe and also walk in faith. Know what they believe and walk in faith rather than worry. Instead of worrying about what's going to happen with health care, the older men in the church are to be the ones who are praying about it and assuring the younger generation that God, our help in ages past, will be our hope for years to come. That Jesus is both the great physician and the great insurance agent. 
And they're to be men not only of faith, he says, but of love. Old Christian men shouldn't be old codgers, should they? They should be kind, gentle men, almost like teddy bears. And then when we say that they're like teddy bears, we have to be careful that we aren't in our minds thinking that they're somehow weak and and spineless. Because then he says that they're to be sound in perseverance as well. And that's not spineless. Older men are to continue in gospel strength all the way to the end. Indeed, that ought to be the uppermost of our concerns when we are getting older. Lord, please help me to finish well. Help me to keep the faith. Help me even to grow in my faith in these last years of my life. And that's true not just for older women, but now also secondly for older older men, but now also secondly for older women. What does Paul say to the older women in verses 3 and 4? Well, he gives them basically the same instructions as he gave to older men. And I meant to mention this earlier. As always, you decide if you're older or younger here. So, um, But I think these things apply across the board. But you, you can decide where you fit in. Paul's instructions to older women are basically the same as to older men. Older women, like older men, are to be respectable in their behavior. That's basically the same thing he was saying in the first half of verse 2. They're to be temperate when it comes to wine, when it comes to other potential vices or wastes of time. And then to that kind of general call for respectability and temperance, Paul adds one piece of instruction peculiarly for older women. And it is, as you see there in verse 3, a warning against gossip. Now the vice of gossip is not limited to older women, is it? But it does seem to take a particular foothold among that population, which is why Paul says something specifically to them about it. And it takes hold especially when a person is idle. It's just so easy, isn't it? to sit in the recliner in front of the window and watch what all the neighbors are doing and then promptly report it to all the other old women. Isn't it? I mean, some of you know people like that. We had a neighbor like that. She knew when we were gone, she knew what we had on our pizza for dinner, it seemed like. And she was always ready to tell other people about it. And it's tempting also, isn't it, when you're idle to get on the phone with Gertrude or Fanny or whoever it may be and to tell them what so-and-so said at church last night or how Mr. and Mrs. What's-His-Name's children were behaving so poorly. And it's easy, too, sometimes to take what started off as a prayer request and to turn it into a gossip session. So male or female, old or young, beware of gossip, but especially as you grow older and have more time on your hands. And then notice... One other piece of instruction that Paul gives to older women, it's the main piece, I think. I mentioned it already in the introductory remarks. Namely, Paul calls on older women to teach the younger women at the end of verse 3. The older women are to help the 20 and 30 and 40-somethings, wherever you want to draw the line there, and encourage them, verse 4, to be good wives and mothers. And to instruct them in purity, verse 5. To be able to just have a kind way of saying, Honey, have you thought about what your blouse may be saying to the young men around you? To advise them on household matters. All of those things are there in verses 4 and 5. The older women in the church ought to be a constant resource for the young singles and the young wives and the young mothers. On all sorts of things. Cooking, training up children, working through disagreements with their husbands and so on. 
It's right here. The older women are to spend time with the younger women. Help them. Older women, are you prepared to do that? And younger women, are you prepared to ask for and receive help? These relationships can really be a blessing in the church. And as Paul reminds us at the end of verse 5, they are a credit to the gospel. When older women help younger women be what younger women are supposed to be, then God's word is not dishonored. So having seen what the older women are to teach the younger women, let's consider now what the younger women were to do with that instruction. Young women, what does Paul say to them? What kind of young women are a credit to the gospel? Well, according to Paul, young women, verses 4 and 5, whose homes and whose husbands and whose children are their top earthly priority. Whatever other responsibilities a young woman may have, Paul calls on her after her personal walk with God to be a worker at home, meaning to work at a good marriage, to work at being a good mom, to work at her children's moral and gospel education. That's to be a top priority for young women who are married and have children. And then to love their husbands. Now, sometimes I've heard women say half tongue-in-cheek, but half seriously, I think. Well, you know, the New Testament says that the husband has to love the wife, but it doesn't ever say that the wife has to love the husband. Well, it doesn't say that in Ephesians or 1 Peter, but here in Titus 2.4, it's clear, isn't it? Young women aren't only to submit to their husbands, but to love them, to look for ways to show their affection and their appreciation for this man who has cared for them and taken them under his wings and for all that he does for his family and for who he is. And, of course, that would go for older women and younger women both who are married. And, of course, part, Paul says, of loving your husband is allowing him to lead the family. Verse 5, being subject to him. He doesn't say being his subject, being his slave, but he does say being subject to him. It's not that the submission is forced by the husband, it's that it's voluntary by the wife. She submits willingly to his guidance and his leadership in the home. And so if you're a young woman, young woman or an older woman who's married, I just ask you, are you allowing your husband to lead? Not kicking and screaming, but voluntarily? Do you trust God enough to follow your husband's lead, not because you think your husband is the brightest guy on the planet, but because God has instructed you to do so and you believe that if you will, he will bless your your obedience? Do you obey your husband? Do you positively love your husband? And then what about the children? Verse 4. Paul says that young women should love their children. Do you love your children that are still at home with you? Or do you grow weary of them? I heard a secular woman on the radio this week talking about having small children, and she said something that I thought was quite instructive. It went something like this. Sure, I only get three hours of sleep right now, but that just means I have more time with the kids that I love. I wonder how many of you who have small kids or who had small kids thought like that. Probably not at 3 o'clock in the morning. But still, do you genuinely love your kids, thank God for your kids, and therefore make every effort to spend time with them and to instruct them in godliness? And women, are you kind rather than brazen? Verse 5. Are you pure? Not just in your behavior, but in the way you dress and even in the way you carry yourself and converse with men. And are you a worker in the home? 
Whatever responsibilities or opportunities, Paul says, that a wife has outside of her home, it is clear in this passage that they should take a back seat to loving her husband and her children, to providing for them a home that's peaceful and warm and a haven for them, to making sure they're well-fed and have clean socks to wear, to work or to school. So for a woman, whether it's her full-time occupation or not, if she is married, she ought to be somewhat of a homemaker and to put her effort into that. And like older men and older women, she's to be sensible too. Not driven by her emotions, but strong in the security that God provides. That's the younger women. What about their husbands and the other young Christian men? What are they supposed to be like? Well, we see there in verses 6 through 8. To the young men, Paul says once again, first of all, be sensible. Use your head. Young men should be sensible in all the ways that older men were to be sensible. Namely, that they be trustworthy and respectable and all of those things. They are to be hard workers. They are to be people who are respected by their peers. They are to be the kind of young men about whom a father would have no qualms if he should ask him to court his daughter. So young men, is that the kind of men you are? That a dad would have nothing to worry about if you showed up at the door? Sensible, dignified, trustworthy. That is the profile of a Christian young man. And then, encouraging Titus to be the example setter for the other young men in verses 7 and 8, Paul explains further what God expects from Titus and from the other young men. And he says in verse 8, particularly that part of their dignity... Part of their sensibility is to be reflected in their speech. In their speech. Isn't it true that just as older women are tempted to gossip and younger women are tempted to act like seductresses sometimes, young men are tempted in the zeal and overconfidence of youth to run off at their mouths. Isn't that true of young men in general? We're tempted to state our opinions too readily, to be harsh and angry when we speak, to be careless with our tongues. But Titus is told that Christian men are different. Christian men fight against these natural fleshly tendencies so that, verse 8b, opponents of the gospel will not have extra ammunition in their pouch with which to level their criticisms at the church. So God help us that it not be that our co-workers and our neighbors would discount the faith because they see that we young men or others are always spouting off at the mouth and are far more arrogant than is fitting for someone who is supposedly a sinner saved by grace. And let it not be that our neighbors or co-workers would be suspect about the faith either because we young men are lazy and unengaged in good deeds, verse 7. Most of our neighbors, I think you'll agree with me, have no idea about what the Bible actually says or what Christians believe about things like faith and repentance and justification and sanctification and atonement and so on. They have no clue about that. But they do know, seemingly sometimes better than some Christians know, that Jesus calls his people to serve the poor and the hurting and the sinners and the sick and the elderly and the marginalized. They know that. And if they never see us 
doing the good deeds that they do know about, then they will almost surely never ask us about the good doctrine that they don't know about. And chief among those in the church who ought to be engaged in good deeds are those who have the most energy and the most strength and the most earning power and so on. And who are they? The young men. And when the neighbors notice our good deeds and ask the reason why we do them, the young men still in verse 7, just like the older men in verse 2, ought to ever be ready with an answer because they have good, sound, pure doctrine in their heads. Good deeds, good doctrine, young men. And finally, and briefly, we should take a look at what Paul says and what God requires of bond slaves. Bond slaves. We live in a culture where there's virtually no bond slavery. There is some that's hidden, but not any that you and I would probably run into on any regular basis, if at all. And therefore, it may seem like Titus 2, verses 9 and 10 are words of historical interest, but no practical value, because they're written to bond slaves. But it seems to me, and I'm sure you've thought this if you've read this passage before, that though the situations are not exactly parallel, these two verses could be picked up by 21st century Americans and applied in the workplace and to our submission to authority in general. In short, Christian bond slaves and Christian employees who have it a lot better than bond slaves do should be the most eager people to follow instructions the easiest to get along with, and the most honest men and women in their workplaces. The most eager to follow instruction, the easiest to get along with, the most honest in their workplaces. We Christians ought to be the ones that our employers can trust with special assignments. We ought to be the ones who are put in charge when the boss is away. We ought to be the ones who can be relied upon to handle the money. We ought to be the ones who arrive on time and go the extra mile and upon whom all the other employees look with respect. And we ought to do all that not so that we can get a raise or a promotion mainly, but rather so that, verse 10, by our hard work and our trustworthiness, we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. I hope that you would remember that last part of verse 10. If you carry something away tonight, maybe it would be the last few verses of verse 10, the last few words of verse 10 that we should live in such a way as to adorn or decorate or beautify the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Not that it needs fixing up, but that to the world the doctrine of God just seems plain and ordinary. And we come along like the jewels in Jesus' crown and show, no, it's not plain and ordinary at all. It changes people. We want to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That's really what this whole passage is about. That we would be the jewels in Christ's crown showing just how wonderful God and His Son and His Word and His Gospel really are. And just to make this a little bit more familiar to you, Paul is saying the very same thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, isn't he? You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5.16? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds in such a way that they may see your dignity and faith, older men, in such a way that they may see your gentleness and service, older women, 
in such a way that they may see the beauty and the godliness of the home that you're creating, young women, in such a way that they may see your self-control and your practical Christian effort, young men, in such a way that they may see your faithfulness and trustworthiness where you work, in such a way that whoever you are in Titus 2, they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.